Good morning, 11 o'clock. I say it often, we had a great 9.30, we really did, so you 11 o'clockers don't mess it up. We love you and believe in you. Happy New Year to everybody. Fresh start, clean slate, new beginning, all of that. And hope that rings true for a lot of us because we sure need it, don't we? Lamentations 3, his mercies are new every morning. And I stand before you today saying I need that. I need some new mercies. I do really do every day. And uh, the, the calendar, when the, the human construction of a calendar turns over, it, it still gets me thinking in that mode uh, quite a bit. Hey, behind me is my office slash library. And in that library, are a lot of books, a lot of volumes. And one of them is called the All Better Book. Now, if you Google this later, you'll probably learn that there's several versions of the All Better Book. But this book, this little volume that I had is quite tiny. And it's a compilation of kids, little kids, being asked their suggestions to some of the really big problems in the world. I'll give you a few examples. First one is they told kids that smoking is harmful to your health, but it seems like telling people that it's not good for them is doing very little to help people quit. So what do you suggest? One nine-year-old girl named Alexis says, I suggest that you find a smoker, go to their house, uh, smoke a cigarette, or pretend to smoke a cigarette, and then die. One uh, problem that the kids in the All Better book are presented with is that every day there are thousands upon thousands of workers that show up on job sites very unfulfilled, very unhappy. Hey kids, what do you suggest? Well, one boy, an eight-year-old named Alex, he suggests that you uh, pay double. Don't pay the workers double. His suggestion was pay double so the bosses could get a big giant tickling machine and all the unhappy workers could get tickled when they experienced bouts of depression or unhappiness. Here, another problem in the All Better book that kids, little kids, were asked to address is the question, with billions of people in the world, why can't someone figure out how to create a system where there are no more lonely people? Matthew, age eight, suggested the following. He said, find the lonely people and compile, get their names and addresses, and then find the people that aren't lonely and get their names and addresses, and then match them up, assign them to each other, and put them all in the newspaper. Sounds like eight-year-old Matthew has the gift of administration. I want to hire him at Fondren Church. Max said to the same problem, why can't someone create a system where no one's lonely in the world? Max says, make food that talks to you when you eat it. Donovan, age nine, Donovan said this. He said, get lonely people a pet or a husband or a wife and take them places. Sounds like Donovan's ready for the marriage workshop coming up. This is the one that gets to me. Stomp your feet, sing a song, read a book. Sometimes I feel like nobody loves me and I do one of these. Brian, age nine. Seems like with billions of people in the world, someone could create a system where there's no one lonely, no one left who is lonely. I will tell you this morning that somebody has. John chapter 13, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. We're going to put it up on the screen in just a moment. John chapter 13. And let me say this as you're turning there. Loneliness apart from kids commenting, is a very real problem. I've preached this to some of you before. Many of you by nature, you're like me, and you're willing to admit that you're busy. You're willing to admit that maybe you're important. You're willing to admit that you're tired, and quite possibly in the right environment with a small group of trusted friends, you're willing to confess a sin or something that is besetting you. 
But very, very few among us are willing to say, I am lonely and I'm at a place in my life where I feel like no one understands. In, in the United Kingdom, you see a picture here. This is the Prime Minister, or I'm sorry, the Prime Minister Theresa May has appointed, uh, knowing the epidemic proportions of loneliness, she has just this past year appointed a Minister for Loneliness. And this is a high-ranking cabinet position. In Japan, in a crowded, crowded country there, it's become common for the elderly to be found in a terrible, lonely death situations. It's so common there and in other parts, but in Japan, there's, they've created a word for it. It is this, kodakushi. Just a few years, well, actually in 2005, uh, it, this story, uh, some of you may even recall, it gained some national or uh, global acclaim. One 70-year-old man, he was um, discovered dead. His body was discovered three years after he died. His apartment rent was being deducted from his bank account. And not until a few years later, when the money in the bank ran out, did someone discover that he had died. It is so common in Japan, this epidemic loneliness of people having nobody, and no one to check on them, that they even have a name for it. In our own country, the U.S., the new U.S. Surgeon General, this past year wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review entitled Work and the Loneliness Epidemic. He looked back at his years of being a reputable, reliable doctor, and he said that the common pathology that he would see is not so much heart disease, diabetes, or cancer, but it's loneliness. Some 40% of Americans at times, the experts say, battle with besetting loneliness. No one to turn to. Even in the midst of the crowd, I feel alone. Now, the, the studies reveal 40%, but because it's something that we don't so easily confess, the numbers must be higher. This Surgeon General, uh, waxing about it, he goes on to say that it's probably better for uh, someone, for a human being, to smoke 15 cigarettes a day than to yield to this despair of loneliness, having nowhere to turn. With billions of people in the world, it seems like someone would create a system where no one is lonely. Jesus created this in John 13. Here's what he said. He said, a new commandment I give to you. By the way, sometimes it's good for preachers to explain things clearly, and sometimes it's good for some tension. Uh, tension can promote learning, right? Some of you teachers, professors know this. Here's an assignment for those of you willing to take it. Research this. Why would Jesus say a new commandment I give to you? Was that new? Was love new? Or was love around from the beginning? God is love. God created. Why would Jesus say that? That's a fascinating um, question. And I hope it leads you to a fruitful place. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you've been hanging around Fondren for several years, excuse me, because every so often now that I've been preaching for close to eight years, I'll reuse a, an illustration from my own life. And so uh, this is just powerful. I can't stay away from it when I see this teaching, this call that Jesus gives us. Uh, many years ago, my wife and I, or Susan was at home and 
I don't sound too traditional or sexist here, but I was at work and Susan was in the kitchen and I come home. Sorry, it was just, it happened that day. And I, I came home and my daughter did not run to meet me. She was just a little bitty thing at the time. She's 17 now. It was in our 930 service. But at the time, she was just a little bitty girl. She always loved when daddy came home. And you know I love that. And she was there to greet me, to hug me, to find out about my day. And we would laugh and just have a great time. And this particular day, I remember so well, she wanted nothing to do with me. In fact, when I would approach her for a hug or for love or affection, she would go, eh, eh. What's wrong, sweet Haley? What's wrong? Eh, eh. She wanted nothing to do with me. And sometimes I get it wrong, right? Sometimes we, you get it wrong. Like we amp it up or we make it a punishment. Just intuitively turned toward her mother, my beautiful wife, and I just went over to her and started hugging her. A, a great display of affection to which uh, I recall Susan was reciprocal in that. So a whole lot of husband-wife affection. And there I remember that and the goodness of that. And then we felt a tug on our clothing way down low where she lived. And it was our little daughter, Haley. You see, I'd asked her how she was doing. I had invited her in. I wanted to love and to hug her. She wanted nothing to do with it. But when she saw love being expressed, she couldn't stay away from it. She wanted a part of that. And can I say to you, you'll never graduate from that, ever. Ever. Jesus knew that. Some of us think, okay, if you've got some young students, I love you and proud of you, future seminarians, but don't, don't be militant. But some of us think, man, I'm going to go to seminary and I'm going to wow the world with my ex, you know, impressive expositional argumentation. I'm going to give arguments to uh, refute uh, you know, the claims against Christianity and I'm going to present Jesus and it's going to be cogent and lucid and everybody's going to want to be a part of what I have to say. And Jesus would say to us, to you, our greatest apologetic is not all the stuff you have crammed in your cranium. It's how you love people. And here's the thing. People are, I've said this a few weeks ago, people are resisting the church by droves because we're not doing this as well as we can. So let us love one another. With billions of people in the world, it seems like someone could create a system where there are no lonely people. Jesus did that if we will follow him. One time, someone came to Jesus and asked a question to which he said the following found in Mark 3. Keep your finger in John 13. But he said this, and he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Am I looking about at those, or I'm sorry, and looking about at those who sat around him? He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brothers and sisters and mother. Now, Jesus is pro-family. I hope everybody understands that. Jesus is pro-family. Jesus is about family values. You're not getting political like we did in the 90s and fighting that fight or whatever, us versus them and all that. But Jesus is pro-family. But here's the thing, Jesus is saying there's a greater family. How many of you, you grew up like me, you grew up in a, a biological family that you love? Like you kind of endured some things, they endured you over the holidays, right? But you love your biological family. So, some of you are like that, right? How many of you uh, just have a really tough time loving your biological family? Just raise your hand today, especially if you're sitting next to, to, to them today. Don't raise your hand. But Jesus is saying, love your family. Biology is pretty doggone important. But there is a family that God has created that transcends that. And it's a spiritual family. And I'm asking you today, in fact, let me point out to some of you, if you're a leader in our church, by leader I mean on staff, an elder, uh, if you're a deacon, if you're a group leader, signing up to lead some of these new groups that we're launching around our sermon-based um, series this spring. If you're a leader here, I want you to, to, to with me, walk with me as we ask this question. And, but I put it in front of everybody uh, today. What does it mean to be a part of God's family? 
What, what does it mean to be a part of God's family? There are three, I need to say this, right? I think I struggled in the early service. There are three two-word phrases in the New Testament that mean the world to me. Three two-word phrases in the New Testament that are so powerful. It's the following here. The first, be with. The second, let us. And the third, one another. You may recognize these. As a church, or as the church, particularly in America, so far removed from the first century church when it exploded, it's easy to get fuzzy, to get funny about what we should be about. And every time that happens here at Fondra, when there's confusion, I try to call our folks back, all of our leaders back to this. Jesus had a plan to change the world. Jesus' plan had to do, as one modern author says, it had to do with radical, ordinary hospitality. And his plan was, be with me. Be with me. And you know what? I'm going to go away. They didn't like this. I'm going to go away. In fact, I'm going to die a death of unspeakable cruelty, sacrificing my life for the good of the world. And in my absence, when I go away, there will be the Spirit. The Spirit will be with you. And if you confess your sin and yield and repent, He will walk with you. He will be with you. He will be with you. And He will even live in you. And so here's my plan. My plan, I mean, you can have sermons and songs and have buildings and budgets and go global on this thing. All those are good. But my plan is that you would be with me. And that my plan is that you would be with each other. In the Bible, in the first chapter, God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, said these two words that I call you to, let us. Anybody know what he said in Genesis 1? Let us what? Do you know it? Say it if you do. You'll get extra points. Impress your friends. Let us create. Some of you are in the 930. You're cheating. Let us make man in our image. Let us. One of those men who became a prophet, Isaiah, and Isaiah 1 said, Come, let us reason together. By the way, following God doesn't mean you put your brain in a bucket. In fact, the opposite. You think, you use your mind, and you engage your heart and your affections. Let us reason together. Though our sins were like scarlet, he has made them white as snow. There is a God who doesn't condemn. There is a God who loves, and there is a God who calls you into a cleansing life. Let us consider that. The psalmist in Psalm 95 and Psalm 100 said, Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. He is our God. We are sheep in his pasture. Let us kneel before him. Come, let us enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Let us enter into his courts with praise. Let us, let us. And in a book called Hebrews that we probably should do sometime... The writer knew that Jesus' followers were being persecuted and some of them were falling away. And so in Hebrews, time and time again, he uses this two-word phrase, let us. And he says, in chapter 4 alone, he says, uh, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Let us stand firm in our confession. Lizzie Delp, um, musical theater major from Belhaven, made a confession today. And we hope that she was able to stand firm in her confession of following Jesus. And that's what we are to do as a community of followers. Let us stand firm in that. Hebrews chapter 4, I love this language. Let us, let us make every effort to enter into his rest. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us to let us draw near with sincere hearts. Who likes hypocrisy? God hates it. Let us draw near with sincere hearts. Hebrews 10, 24, it uses both of these. Let us provoke or stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Hebrews 12, 1, let us lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. Hebrews 12, 26, let us have grace. 
And he says in Hebrews 13, let us offer the sacrifice of praise. Let us, let us. The plan is to be with and to be with people have leaders who say, let us. We don't stand on a stage in a lofty perch and point down to people and say, you, you, you. We say, let us be a part of this. And there are 59 one another's in Scripture. Now, some of them are repetitive. The, the, the few that are repetitive are encourage one another. That's found in several places. Love one another. We read that three times in, John, in these three verses in John chapter 13. It tells us to greet one another with a holy kiss. That's mentioned five times in Scripture. Does that, does that creep anybody out? What if I gave you an assignment right now? Are you sitting? Just look at somebody next to you. Would you be willing to greet them uh, with a holy kiss? Here's what that means. It means to be culturally appropriate. It means to be culturally appropriate, but it does mean to be affectionate, to, to form deep bonds of friendship and to express it, to let your appreciation be expressed. And some of you are like me, you're wired for touch. I'm a, I'm a big hugger, and so I love it. It's, it's one of my primary love languages, and some of us are like that. Some of us, you really are creeped out. If, if I said, do that now, you would leave right now. But greet one another with a holy kiss. And so in Scripture, it tells us, Mark 9.50, be it, how you doing with this? Be at peace with one another. How you doing there? How are the holidays? What's your family situation? What have you done to create peace? Notice Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers, like you go toward conflict and make peace in that. So you don't just sit back passively. Be at peace with one another. Honor one another. Romans 12, 10, two in one verse. Honor one another, be devoted to one another. Ephesians 5, be, uh, be submissive to one another. Lay down your rights. Put down your ego. Lay it down and serve others. John 13, this same chapter that some of you turn to, it says Jesus t- taught us that we are, after he washed feet, he said you need to wash the feet of one another. There's a picture at a seminary in Dallas that I visited last year. Here's the picture. The inscription that you can't see, it's on the other side. If you're listening online, it's a beautiful statue of one um, with their feet in a basin of water and one, one kneeling below, one washing feet. And on the other side, the inscription that you can't see, trust me on this, it says to the seminarians, it says where ministry meets theology. And what I love about it and the way it, why it moves me is because it is not what we know. Knowledge, Hosea said, is power, like learn. But Paul would say in the great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 that knowledge puffs up. And let's be careful in all of our theology and all that we know. Let's be careful that it leads to this, that we would wash each other's feet. And so I'm going to run really fast through the following. I want to give you three one another's, three of the 59. I'll talk, talk about them just a little bit. A, B, C. I pick, I'm just taking the alphabet. A, B, C. I'm going to mention one with an A, one with a B, one with a C. And then we're going to ask four really quick questions about community. The bigger question is, how can we be a part? What does it mean to be a part of the family of God in 2019? The first one another I give to you comes from Romans 15. It is this. The A is accept. Accept one another. Then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. How do you praise God? Well, you come to church and sing. That's a part of it. You want to really praise God, accept one another. So let me ask you, is that easy? Talk to me. No. 
Is that easy? So I was like, keep preaching, Robert. Go, go on, go on. Is that easy? Accept one another. How difficult is that? How difficult is that to accept one another? And here's the thing, like, you know, I, I want to accept you if you clean up your act. I want to accept you. Here we go. I want to accept you if you're just like me. If you talk like me and look like me and think like me and jive with me and you give off that vibe that I like, then I'll accept you. But anything different, anything outside of that realm, yeah, you need to meet my standards of approval. You need to follow what is culturally shaped standards of achievement. But Scripture tells us, look, all that needs to, all that needs to fall down. We are to accept one another. How, uh, this is important, how did Jesus accept you? Just like you are. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us in while we were yet sinners. Not when we were pretty and polished and perfectly packaged. None of that because nobody is that. If you're living that way or projecting that, how tired are you? How fatiguing is that? Like, I really feel sorry for you. But God demonstrated his love. This is the gospel. God demonstrated his love for us in while we were yet sinners. He accepted us. He died for us. So do you think you could have coffee with somebody? that's different than you? You think you can invite someone in that's not already in your holy huddle? You think you can make space on the pew on Sunday morning for someone who doesn't look like you? Can you rejoice with somebody and weep with them? You won't unless you can accept one another. A couple of consecutive summers when I was uh, a youngster just out of college, I went with a Campus Crusade for Christ. It's called Crew now. And I, I, I lived in a country that doesn't even exist anymore. It used to be called Yugoslavia. And for these two consecutive summers, we were there. It's Croatia now. The city is Belgrade. It's a city of several million people. And it was in the uh, eight, not, years were 89 and 90 when the winds of change were sweeping through central western Europe. And this country was uh, the people, the students there that we ministered to were largely the products of Marxist atheistic culture. Uh, there were beautiful uh, buildings. Uh, this was built in 1948. How pretty is this? Uh, the, there were churches with stained glass and pews and just beautiful architecture that were no longer churches. And these were points of conversation and segues for us to talk to students about spiritual matters. And we loved the people there in Belgrade and they loved us. We were Americans and they just would bend over backwards to show us hospitality. And we'd ride on the bus or public transit with some of these people and they're like, oh, you know, everybody smokes, you know, and uh, doesn't use deodorant. And they're just smoking and stuff. And oh, the Americans, hey, yeah, yeah, come, come, come to my flat. Let's have coffee. Let's have coffee, cigarette, you know. And uh, it was so welcoming, so much hospitality. And I was with one night, I remember, with one of my American friends, a guy named John DeJager from New York. And I remember, I'll never forget what he said. He said, here, when they invite you over, it means we're family. But back in my home state of New York, when people invite you over, it means it's an audition. It means it's a network. It means there's something that someone is trying to get from somebody. Somebody's trying to make a connection. And radical, ordinary Biblical, ancient hospitality is so refreshing in our day and should be the heartbeat of a church that says, hey, come on over, let's move toward family and let's accept one another. And here's what I love about the Bible. Some of you, look, you're, you're, um, you're skeptical, maybe cynical. Can I just say, I love you and I'm so glad that you're here. Let me speak into every doubter, but I just love this because Jesus is the most brilliant teacher and the most brilliant mind ever. And what Jesus taught and apparently what his early followers ultimately grasped is that acceptance 
first is the way people change. And you know that every psychologist, every expert in human growth and development in psychology will tell you that when someone feels fully accepted and understood, that's when they change. If you try to nag people and beat them and berate them to get them to change, that is so less effective. Some of you know this, right? And Jesus taught it so long ago. We start with one another with acceptance. Second thing, the B. Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, what's the law of Christ? The law of Moses is the Ten Commandments. And then they added a whole bunch of things, 613 other commandments. Can, you, can anyone stand up and name the 613 commandments? Here we go again, the brilliance of Jesus, okay? Jesus, the law of Christ is what? We just read it. To love one another. That's the law of Christ. Who can remember that? Who's drawn to that? Who votes? Who's in favor of that? Who thinks the world needs that? The law of Christ is to love one another. And one of the ways that we love one another is to accept one another. A. B. We can bear one another's burdens. Do we? A couple of weeks ago, January 10th, or I'm sorry, January 2nd, I was with my 14-year-old Wesley. We were in Tampa. I went down to watch my bull puppies lose a bowl game. About a 10 and a half hour drive. Still stings. And we were stuck in Tampa traffic. It was a traffic snarl. I mean, like Jackson doesn't have these. This was a traffic snarl. And on this day, my teenager had his headset on. He was a couple of rows behind me. We had a rented SUV. And I was driving, and I noticed probably what he didn't notice, but there were two teenage boys. I would say early teenage boys. I'm guessing 13 years old, 14, maybe 15. And these two boys were making their way across this busy street. And one of them, man, he darted across. But the other needed his, his journey across the road in the middle of all this traffic. It, it required focus and effort and even concentration, I would say. And this second boy had braces on both of his legs. And the one boy, the boy with healthy legs, darted across the street, and this one struggled to get across. And as he did, I noticed that this boy, there was a retaining wall, and the boy with the healthy legs jumped up on the retaining wall. And the boy with braces on both legs didn't even try But you know what he did? He got to the wall, and he backed up, and he turned around. Excuse me. And he lifted up his arms. And the boy with the healthy legs bent over and picked him up. And I thought in that moment, and I share it with you now, what if we devoted ourselves to lifting up other people? What if that's what we were about? Here's the thing. Some of you, you spent this past week tearing somebody down. Not building anybody up. Not lifting anybody up. And I have found that it's easy to talk about people, isn't it? It's easy to talk about people that aren't in the room, and it's easy to take shots and form opinions and act like we know it all. And we're moving so far away from accepting one another and bearing one another's burdens. And here's what I know. When I spend my time and energy, when my focus is on lifting other people up, I don't have as much time to tear people down. And we're called in Scripture to bear one another's burdens. And for whoever needs to hear it this morning, let me just say, it's easy to always think we're the boy with the healthy legs. We're the ones lifting up. But let me say, there are times in everyone's life, doesn't matter who you are, in everybody's life, where you'll need to be the guy that says, I just can't do this on my own. I, don't, I, I can't even try. Foolish to even try. And what that boy with braces on both legs knew, we need to learn, you need to learn. 
back up, turn around, lift up your arms, and be lifted up because you can't do it on your own. Accept one another, bear one another's burdens, and the C, I've got 59 to choose from. I'll pick this. Confess your sins to one another. James 5.16 says it this way. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Present tense, it's working. It's not just a bam, bam, thank you, ma'am, flash in the pan. It's a progression. It's ongoing. But here's the big elements of this. You confess, we pray, and there's healing. And I would say to you, strong language here, there is no healing without this. There is no healing without a confession of being able to say, here's my point of need. Here's where I need help. Friend connected. He, got, he did what we said a few years ago. He got out of rows and into a circle. And he showed up. He would show up regularly. They would have spiritual conversations. But he said, there was something in me in my core. And there was this sickness. And I just wouldn't uncork it. I wouldn't let it out. And so I hid. But there was a day in this group that I felt a little bit comfortable. And I spoke up. For the first time, I shared. He writes to me in an email, Robert, I felt amidst the, my success and the trappings of success externally inside I felt like a failure as a father and his email said his own words were I felt like a failure as a father because I was failing as a father it was crushing my soul and I let my group in on this they didn't shame me they didn't give up on me they accepted me but it was based on him being able to confess. And I loved what he said. He said, when we confess, we are a church. Our group is a group of people at Fondren who are great acceptors. And oh, I pray that when we do confess, that we move toward healing and that we do it around acceptors because great acceptors pray and great acceptors are pointing people to forgiveness. And so, Four quick questions. I'll be really fast. Four quick questions about what it means to be in the family of God, to be a part of this. The first is, how do I find community? Some of you today in 2019, a new year is here, and you say, hey, I want to take them up on this challenge. I'm going to find my people at Fonda. I want to give this a shot. How do you do that? How do you move from being in a crowd of hundreds of people to being with a few, to find a trusted few? I want to say to you, I want you to initiate. And men in particular, just look at me. There, uh, there's a lot riding on this. Initiate. That's just a great principle. Initiate. There's a marriage workshop coming up in a few weekends. We're calling it a workshop because that just sounds manly, doesn't it? It's a marriage workshop. Did you see what we did to you? We put up a graphic. Daniel Hicks did. And he put tools in it. Like, were you, do you have something to do with this, Laura? Like, there are tools. Like, you, you can be given tools to make your marriage. Here's what would be incredible. Here's what would be crazy. If you, as a man, signed your, you and your wife up for the marriage, you'd have to pick her up off the floor, I think. But sign up for the marriage conference, right? And come and learn and be given these tools. Initiate. Jesus taught us about prayer. We did a whole sermon series on this back in, I believe it was August. We called it Ask. Jesus said, Ask, Seek, Knock. I remember a couple of the staff when they said, when I told them we were calling our sermon series Ask, they said, Just pronounce the hard K. Just come in hard uh, with the K. But we did a whole series, Ask, Seek, and Knock. 
And Jesus said, when you ask, it will be given to you. When you seek, you will find. And when you knock, the door will be open. That's the promise. And if, if, you, if you follow me, you realize that every promise there is very positive, right? Don't you like it when you're given a gift? Don't you like it when you find something? Don't you like it when a door is open? And Jesus is teaching us, man, he said it in the universe. The people that ask and seek and find, that knock, they, they, they're given things. They find. The doors of opportunity are open and every positive result that Jesus talked about hinges on a personal action. So that's why it'll never grow old for us to look to a crowd of people and say, sign up, show up. For some of you, these are terrifying words, but take a risk to get to know other people and to be known by others. When I was a young single man, about 26 years old, had not married yet, moved to Miami, had a roommate named Daryl, great guy, grew up in inner city Miami, played college football, awesome friend, and we were just, we were buds, but um, he didn't know anybody on the Coral Gable side of town, like nobody, and I didn't, uh, I didn't know anybody in the whole, like, Dade County. And so we attended a church, uh, a lot bigger than this one. We attended a church of thousands of people, and we were just struggling to meet people, to, to you know, find a relationship. We did, the signs weren't good. I don't know how they were a big church. They didn't have any signs, and we didn't know how to get in a group or anything. We're trying to make it easy for everybody today. But uh, So we just we would walk up to a group of people after church and just kind of start talking, and we're trying to like work our way into where they were going to lunch. And So I just kind of started dropping hints. I'm like, yeah, well, I guess, I'll, I guess we'll just go back to our apartment and heat up a Hot Pocket or something like that. And, so I did like, like three or four Sundays in a row. Yeah, I'm just going to go back home and heat up a hot pocket. And one day, a guy named Frank Jimenez said, man, you, what's up with hot pockets? Like, <laughs> it's not good. It's not good for you. Like, we're, we're, we all go to lunch. You want to just come with us? Like, hot pockets, you know? And so Frank, on that day, introduced me to plantains. Anybody know about plantains? Oh, stop it. They're great. There was a Cafe Olay, this Venezuelan place that closed down. Oh, right here in Fondren that served the best plantains I've had since Miami. But on this day, this began a new friendship, a friendship that exists to this day, a, a, a man who stood at my wedding, a dear friend who introduced me to other friends. And I'm glad, although I was passive-aggressive dropping hints, I'm glad that I had some level, though cowardly, of initiative. Take the initiative. Can I say that? How do I find community? Second question, how do I build community? There's a great quote from German theologian, pastor of the 1930s, one who would later die at the hands of Hitler's Nazi regime. The first service one owes to others in fellowship consists in listening to them. Many people are looking for an ear that will listen. They do not find it among Christians because Christians are talking when they should be listening. This is the death of the spiritual life. In the end, there is nothing left but the spiritual chatter of pious words. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in a book I recommend called Life Together. My boy Ryan's taking a picture of the screen. I appreciate that. Listen. James would say this. You know this verse. Everyone, James 1.19, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. You know the next part of that? What does it say? Slow to anger. Every time I preach James 1.19, it's always the anger part. Be slow to anger because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What about this part? And who does it apply to? Everyone. Everyone. So I'm one of the biggest talkers in the room. Don't laugh. I love to talk. 
Some would say the gift of gab. But one of the things I've learned, and I'm growing by leaping bounds, is that when I walk in a room, it's not about me. Now, you're counting on me to talk for 30 minutes, 35 minutes on a Sunday morning. But most of the time, I'm better served by listening to other people. And I think Fonder, and I think we have some staff now where I'm definitely not the smartest person in the room. Isn't that great? There's some other people here smarter than me, and it pays to listen. And that's what we need to do. So hear me now. We need to change our posture. Instead of walking into a new church, a new place, a new group and saying, ah, how can I impress you by what I know and who I know and what I do and where I've traveled? What if I just listened and I said, tell me about you first. And then what if you ask questions, listen to stories, and then the next time you saw them, you remembered something about the story and ask them about it. How cool would that be? Like I could break into a motivational seminar right now on how to win friends and influence people. But if we would do that, if we would do that, we would be biblically true. We would be more like a... New Testament community. How do I find community? Ask Sikhnok, how do I build community? Go deeper, take the initiative, and listen to people. How do I deepen community? It won't be through changing your curriculum or what you study. It'll be being involved with people in richer, deeper ways. We are a metro church. We believe that it's good. When I was in college, high school and college, my life changed. I drove 35 miles to church and back twice on Sunday, a couple of times during the week. We believe, because of where we're centrally located, that we can be a metro church. But when it comes to groups, we believe it's important to move toward geography, to move toward people that you live close to and work with so that you can babysit at the last minute. You can run people to the airport. You can look after them. And the richest groups at Fondra, and those that are really deepening community, are doing that. Fourth question, I'm on the clock. How do I preserve community? And here's what we do. If you're in a group, you're having spiritual conversation, you're meeting regularly, you're enjoying the people that you're with. It is so easy to think these, to think along this lines. Us four, no more, shut the door. It's a holy huddle. I don't want to mess this up. We like the status quo. But can I tell you, if you hadn't discovered it already, if you just want to preserve community with the same people, it's going to become a click and it's going to grow stale. So here's how you preserve. According to Jesus, here's how you preserve community. You ready for it? You preserve community by disrupting community. Jesus never said, um, oh, I don't want you to ruin the chemistry of this group. He, all, he never said that. Never did he say those words. In fact, he said, go. He said, invite. He said, make disciples. He said, multiply your circles. And so Shannon, as a team, comes up and we begin to close. I want to quickly tell you in this regard a story I know. I saw it front and center not long ago. I'm going to call him Mike to protect his name. That's not his name, but let's call him Mike. Mike showed up at a group that I was leading. And Mike was, didn't believe in God at first. And Mike was a colorful guy with colorful language. And when he showed up, we thought, you know, we got a group. We've been, we've been together for several years. We like each other. He's going to mess up our conversation. And boy, did he. We had a guy praying like he didn't know any of the assumptions, all the cliches we use and all the standard operating procedures of Christian. He didn't know any of that stuff. And Mike, one time, one of the guys, the other guys in the group was praying and he's Pentecostal. God bless Pentecostals. I'm not disparaging. But uh, this guy would pray. For, you know, every, every prayer was Father God, Father God. Hey, Father God, Father God. And Mike, one time, mid-prayer said, but why are you praying Father God every single time? Just right in, I've never seen someone confront someone during prayer. I've always like, if I have to confront, I always wait till after the prayer, then I confront them, right? Mike confronted mid-prayer. And as he was 
getting close to making a decision in Jesus. I was going to be gone for a few weeks, and we were having a group discussion. Who's going to lead the group in my absence? Nobody wanted to. And Mike goes, I'll never forget the day. Mike goes, oh, hell, I'll lead. <laughs> we saw this guy. We wanted to preserve what we had, but Mike came in. Mike came in and disrupted our community, and it was the best thing for us. Go. Make disciples, invite others, and multiply your circles. How do you preserve community? By disrupting it. And I pray we'll be that kind of church. Let's stand. Circle up. In this season of uh, giving people a low commitment, simple, easy step into community, that people today and this week and next week and the next would sign up for one of these sermon-based groups, would follow along with us as a church, and that you would lead us to greater depth and meaning as a people, and that we could be more like a family, accepting, bearing one, with one another the burdens that we share, confessing, lead us to what it means to be a family. And I thank you that others are drawn into it and we're drawn into it deeper. In you, 